From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. Today, we'll be focusing on how COVID-19 is affecting hospital capacity now and how it will continue to influence how hospitals manage their capacity over the next several years. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. I'm here today with my colleague, Christopher Kearns. You can call me Christopher. (laughs) And Christopher, you head up the executive insights part of advisory board. And as such, you've quickly become the firm's expert on all things COVID-19. So I'm betting we're going to be hearing from you a lot over the next several months. Sadly, I think that's accurate. And I apologize for that. I think that's all right. In fact, I think that's the advisory board realized that. And that's why you and I both have one of these fancy new microphones in our home offices. Yeah, I'm super impressed with that. I'm hoping to use it to start my new ASMR channel. (laughs) So aside from playing with your new toy, maybe starting a YouTube channel, what else are you doing to stay sane during these times? Well, I've actually taken the opportunity to start hobbies that I have been meaning to try out for some time. A couple of years ago, I was at the Maryland Renaissance Festival, which if you've never been to it, it is amazing and it is super, super legit. I bought a mountain dulcimer a couple of years ago when I was under the influence of probably too many Natty Bows and some mead. So I've been teaching myself how to play Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode. That's amazing. And I'm I'm hoping that can be our new intro music or exit music. Maybe next time. Uh, Maybe at some point when I actually manage to get past the first three bars. (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. So Christopher, I want to start by asking you about the short term. I think a lot of executives are really focused, rightfully so, on putting out the fires directly in front of them every single day. So I want to ask, what actually is the right amount of short-term thinking to have here? Well, there are a ton of short-term challenges that orgs are facing every single day, as you mentioned, uh, converting units, addressing the supply shortages, et cetera. But I think it's important to remember that most of the country has not seen the peak of COVID cases yet. Unless you are in New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, Michigan, or state of Washington, you're probably not seeing huge numbers right now of COVID cases. Now, that will vary from city to city, obviously. Nationwide, we expect the peak to happen around April 15th, although that will be later for some states. Wow, that is not a whole lot of time to prepare. What should executives actually be doing now to create as much capacity in their hospitals as possible? Well, the first things they should be doing is canceling all elective procedures. Now, most organizations have done that already, and that's good. And that will free up a lot of capacity, especially if you need to convert ORs or ASCs into specific types of ICU bed units. But I think just as important is that you need to be able to redirect patient demand where appropriate. So for non-COVID cases, making sure that they have adequate places to go, leveraging telehealth where possible. So using that as a means of being able to manage non-COVID or non-urgent cases, redeploying staff where you can. So taking them from units that might have been staffing elective procedures and moving them toward ICUs or toward the ED. And of course, locating all available supplies. In fact, that is probably one of the most important things that administrative staff can do right now. Hmm. So it sounds like if we're thinking about the health system at large, it's a matter of looking at the assets that you have and the people that you have and making sure that they can be redirected as much as possible to managing COVID. And of course, the only way you can actually do that is to decrease the the number of elective procedures, reduce the things that you're doing in the outpatient space that aren't related to COVID so you can really attack this head on. Exactly. And One of the most important tools that CMS has provided is the relaxation of a lot of regulations around telehealth. So ensuring that there are a lot more 
services that can be reimbursed um, via CMS. So for example, CMS now allows 80 services that are reimbursable um, via telehealth. They're also relaxing a lot of the regulations around it, meaning that you don't need to have an existing relationship to have a telehealth visit. You don't need to have met the deductible, for example, to use telehealth or to have certain telehealth services reimbursed. And there are funds that are being directed to the FCC to help organizations stand up some of their telehealth capabilities. So I think this is going to be a bit of a watershed moment for expanding capacity via telehealth and, frankly, mm-hmm. via artificial intelligence as it becomes possible. So, you know, you've probably heard about some of the capabilities that are out there. Uh, for example, we recommend standing up a phone line or a chatbot for patients who suspect that they may be ill to check for symptoms. If patients seem like they could have some COVID symptoms, schedule virtual visits for them. Make sure that you've got clear referral pathways in place for those patients. So making sure that there is an adequate pathway for patients that use the telehealth platform, and frankly, make sure that your physicians, especially your primary care physicians, have access to that platform. That's right. That's right. And that's, of course, not the only type of regulation that's being relaxed under these sort of unprecedented times that really come back to how do you redirect patient demand, redeploy staff, get the supplies that you need uh, to manage the peak that's coming in the next several weeks. You know, one of the things that is really important about the relaxation of certain types of regulations is the ability to direct patients toward alternative sites of care. Mm-hmm. So things that you may not have been able to do in the past. So a lot of systems are using places such as dorm beds, gyms, yeah. hotels where possible. Um, others are partnering with post-acute care sites. Providers also need to make sure that they have their discharge plans in place. So partnering with home health agencies to get the support that they need for patients and getting them faster home. You can also use 1135 waivers to expedite the discharge of non-COVID patients and then potentially COVID patients as well to other post-acute care facilities. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this short-term thinking is where a lot of the industry is is, is focused on and has to be focused on, uh, as we said, in the next two weeks. But I'm not hearing enough conversation about what's going to happen after the peak, after the outbreak is actually over. So let's imagine a world that's uh, a couple of months into the future. We've made it through the worst of the outbreak and executives need to know what to do next once they can sort of lift their heads up. What do you recommend in the medium term that executives be focused on? I think in the medium term, the biggest challenge is making up for any revenue shortfalls that occurred in the short term while they were managing the COVID outbreak. Now, for hospitals and health systems that see huge surges in patient volumes as a result of COVID, they are going to get a certain revenue offset Mm. from those patients that come in. But for the majority of organizations that are not likely to see the same level of surge that New York has, they're going to have a pretty huge revenue shortfall. And that mostly comes from the fact that they canceled all of their elective surgeries. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we calculated that on average for a 1,000-bed health system with $1.2 billion in annual revenue, the amount of revenue that they would lose over a three-month period of canceled elective surgeries is about $150 million, a little bit less than $150 million, which is about mm-hmm. 51% of their expected revenue. So they're going to have to find a way to get as much of that back as possible by capturing all of that pent-up demand. But it's important to keep in mind that not all of that pent-up demand is going to be there because the economy is almost certainly falling into recession. That will depress certain levels of demand. So I think there's going to be a scramble to capture as much of the pent-up demand that is still available as possible. Hmm. For some organizations or some communities, they might actually see enough COVID cases that it's actually a revenue boost for the system. Is that right? 
Potentially. It's not a guarantee. And this is just based on some preliminary modeling that we've done here at Advisory Board. But it assumes that you have the capacity to take in a huge demand of patients from a relatively high infection rate. So while it is technically possible for some organizations to gain in revenue as a result of this epidemic, the truth is that most orgs do not have the ability to capture the demand that would be required in such a huge infection rate. So overall, it's it's still looking like a revenue loss, although there might be some cases of success. I think the vast majority of hospitals and health systems will find themselves at a loss at the end of this three-month period, for sure. That's a lot of strain on the health system and on providers, right? The idea that there's going to be this acute period of stress as communities and organizations hit the peak of COVID-19 cases. But even once it's over, hospitals aren't necessarily going back to baseline because to meet this massive, massive revenue shortfall, they're going to have to ramp up production in every other part of the system going forward. That's likely to have a, a big impact on, on staff, on people, on, on the health system's ability to manage that stress. Well, let's keep in mind that while a lot of people who work for any given hospital or health system are hugely busy right now, there are a number of people who have been furloughed. And some of them are even clinical staff simply because their skills aren't necessarily appropriate for the needs right now. So they will be very, very busy and their productivity numbers are likely going to have become very, very high in a very short amount of time if they're going to be able to capture a lot of that demand. But there are going to be a number of people who are working very hard right now and will continue to work hard. That when we get through this crisis, it does not mean the end of the crisis for the hospital, given the target that they have on them for being able to make up as much revenue as possible. Remember, we're talking about organizations that have margins that are generally below 2% on operating margin. Hmm. So I think organizations are going to have to be very, very careful about how they are managing burnout among their staff. And they're going to have to be very careful about how they are managing productivity expectations for employees who just felt like they went through a war. Yeah. But the good news is, it sounds like you're saying that the people that are really at the front lines of that war aren't necessarily going to be the same people who are redeployed to manage, say, elective surgery volume going forward. Not all of them will be, but a lot of the nursing staff in particular will be asked to step up now and they will be asked to step up several months from now. So I think as we start to think about burnout, as we start to think about employee support, supporting the nurses in particular, I think will be extremely important if we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can to keep the healthcare system sustainable. We'll get back to talking about the long-term effects of COVID-19 after this short break. If you want us to cover a topic or have feedback about this podcast, you can leave that right in our iTunes page or email us at podcastsadvisory.com. That's podcasts with an S. All right, so we've talked about the role that leaders and executives need to play in the next several weeks. And we've also talked about the shift in focus in the next several months. Let's continue this forward trajectory and talk about capacity in the long term. Let's imagine a world where COVID-19 is largely behind us. How should hospitals be thinking about capacity planning for the future? One of the biggest challenges that we've seen over the last several months is the difficulty in transforming existing capacity into the ICU capacity that might be necessary or the outpatient capacity into the inpatient capacity that's necessary. We've talked about this quite a few times over the years at advisory board and the importance of being able to build out flexible capacity as necessary. 
So this is something I'm struggling with because a lot of what we've been tracking at advisory board over the last several years is the shift in care from the inpatient space to the outpatient space. I'm curious, is all the focus from COVID-19 calling that shift into question? Yes and no. I think we're going to see two very different types of pressures placed on health systems once this crisis starts to ebb. On the one hand, Yes, there will be enormous political pressure in particular to make sure that there is adequate capacity to manage pandemics and to manage huge outbreaks in the future. On the other, given the financial strain that a lot of organizations are going to be under when this crisis ebbs, there's going to be an enormous pressure to control cost and improve efficiency. And that doesn't mean staffing lots of beds that are just not getting occupied, that are just not getting used. So I think the answer is the capacity that is built out going forward is likely going to have to be a lot more flexible in nature. And the challenge, of course, is that capacity that is flexible is a lot more expensive, 25% more expensive on average. And these are the sorts mm -hmm. of beds that are able to convert from outpatient spaces into critical care capacity, depending on what the needs are at any given time. So again, they are more expensive to build, but they're not necessarily more expensive to operate. So I think a lot of those initial costs are likely going to have to be borne if we want to be able to build out that flexible capacity without expanding the bed count in the U.S. pretty dramatically over the next few years. Hmm. So tell me a little bit more about this flexible capacity. It's more expensive, but what does it actually look like? Flexible capacity is designed to accommodate patients of very different levels of acuity for their entire stay. So, for example, rooms are typically 300 to 400 square feet to accommodate electrical outlets, medical gases, observation windows, and data ports found in ICUs. Uh, they tend to be divided into three different zones for the patient, the family, and the care team. And as I mentioned, while these rooms are about 25% more expensive to build, their use has actually resulted in a reduced length of stay in a lot of cases by a full day for high acuity patients at some organizations, and they can be a key to having this flexible capacity during any sort of public health emergency. So we think that they do have value, and we expect their resurgence in the not-distant future. Leaders need to build in spaces in their hospitals that can easily flip towards more towards higher acuity patients should something like a pandemic happen in the future. Well, it's certainly a lot easier than trying to build out capacity in a hotel or a convention center. Hmm. I'm not saying that this will be the solution everywhere, but I think that given the pressures that a lot of hospitals and health systems are going to be under to both control costs, but also maintain emergency capacity, this is an option that a lot are going to have to consider. All right. So Christopher, thank you so much for spending this this time with me. I know that every single minute is is precious in the middle of a crisis and a pandemic, and you're doing a lot to get our answers out to the healthcare industry and to leaders across the country. But I want to ask you one more question. And I'll be honest, it's a question that I'm going to be attempting an answer at myself. And it's a question that I'll be asking all of my guests here at Radio Advisory. So let's pretend you've got an executive on the phone and, and you sort of do because you're, you're on this podcast. What's the one thing you'd tell an executive to do this week? We're all caught up in the short-term challenges for a lot of very understandable reasons, but the long-term comes around a lot faster than you think it will. And I think that hospital and health system leaders in particular need to start planning for how they are going to manage the long-term challenges once this outbreak starts to ebb. Christopher, thanks so much again for joining us for this podcast. Thanks. Stay healthy, everyone. 
You can find Christopher these days talking about all things COVID-19 and its impact on the healthcare industry. In fact, Christopher is running free weekly webinars on advisory.com. Links for these webinars and the rest of our coverage can be found in the show notes for this episode. So I spend a lot of my time uh, traveling around the country, at least not under a travel advisory, working with healthcare leaders across the industry. But in particular, I spend a lot of my time working with physician leaders. And the one piece of advice that I would give to anyone that's leading a group on the front lines of the healthcare workforce, whether it's physicians or nurses or, or any member of your staff, is to keep in mind how important it is to just be a good human right now. The workforce is struggling with a lack of PPE. Their hours are longer than ever before. They've got shortages. A lot of organizations are furloughing employees. So remember to be as visible and transparent with your physicians and your nurses and your staff. And just keep doing your best. And as always, we're here to help. <laughs>